Today we're going to talk about Isaiah, and the official uh, title that I gave this topic in your programs is a little different than the one I might have on the board. I, I'm a little bit more careful now because the title that's in your, in your programs I gave at a venue one time. Uh, I talked about the Assyrian terrorist threat, and uh, I need to be careful because there are American citizens who are, who are um, from Persia, from ancient Persia, I mean from modern Persia, which is what country? Iran. And uh, they call themselves Assyrians. And I certainly didn't want to imply anything by that, but I had some people in the back of the auditorium that day on the edge of their seats. The point is, though, that, of course, during this time period, um, there was some major threats towards Jerusalem, and we're going to talk about that today. Let's uh, go ahead and jump right into it. In the year that King Uzziah died, so the text begins in Isaiah chapter 6. This was a very traumatic time for ancient Judah because the king was dead. Uzziah was one of the more powerful Judean kings that had reigned up to that point in time. He had expanded economically the uh, borders of Judah and uh, at that time, again, and Israel. He uh, continued to... to uh, have strong economic policies that caused a resurgence, probably not since the time of Solomon did Judah experience such a uh, surge of activity. But then the king dies, and that leaves the country in a vacuum and with huge questions. What does the future hold? What is going to take place down the line? And particularly regarding the Assyrian threat that was looming in the background, this was a big question that people were asking at that time. Thanks to an Adventist scholar, Edwin Thiele, who was a professor at Andrews for many years, we have a definitive work now on the numbers of the Hebrew kings so that we can date precisely, based on the biblical evidence and extra-biblical evidence, precisely when these, this event took place, when that year was. Isn't it neat that we have that kind of corroboration? Edwin Thiele wrote his dissertation at the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute. It was later published by the University of Chicago Press and is still in print today, even though it was published in the early 1950s. It still is the definitive work on the subject. In fact, I just read an article that came out this last week describing this uh, for us. Uzziah, or Azariah, as he's called in another passage of Scripture, lived from nine, uh, 792 to 739 B.C. So the year that King Uzziah died was what year? 739. So we're talking about 2,747 uh, years or so ago. The demise of Israel, which Isaiah saw in his own lifetime, took place in 722 B.C., just a few years later. And it is in the year that King Uzziah died that in chapter 6 we read about Isaiah's vision and his call. I referred to it this morning in my Sabbath school class. You remember when he sees God high and lifted up, seated upon his throne with the seraphim on either side, singing one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's what he sees. And he's trembling at the threshold when he is asked the question or when God asks the question to the universe, whom shall we send and who will go for us? 
Isaiah responds to that call immediately. He doesn't hesitate like Moses did or like Jeremiah did. He jumps on his feet and he says, Lord, what? Send me. And he then is told what he is going to expect now that he's, now that he's accepted the commission to be an ambassador for, for the Lord. It won't be an easy track ahead of him. Why? Well, the Assyrian Empire is encroaching on Judah. His message at first is directed to Israel, but Israel does not heed Isaiah's message or God's message through Isaiah. And so Israel is decimated and its population is carried off into captivity in 722 B.C. Isaiah sees the fulfillment of that prophecy in his own lifetime. And now... As the powers that would be, the Assyrian Empire moves further and further south. It encroaches on Judah, and there is, in fact, only one thing that is holding it back from its real goal, and that is to get down to Egypt and conquer Egypt itself. Judah is in the way. And, of course, the, 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 the geographical reality of where God placed Israel right in this land bridge between the major empires meant that it would be a territory that would be fought over over and over again as the centuries went by. God knew that he needed to place his people in a place where they could be a light to all the nations, and he puts them right smack in the middle so that when the Egyptians had to go and do trading with the Mesopotamians, they had to go through Israel. And when the Mesopotamians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and others had to come down, they had to go through Israel. And so Israel was right at the center of the then-known world. The Assyrians were known for their bloodthirsty military tactics. And you read through them today. Um, you can read them in English. They've been all translated. Um, you read them today, and you see the images on the uh, reliefs that have been found in the palaces of the Assyrian kings, uh, such as this one here. And you can see that they used every single military tactic possible to defeat their enemies. Here you can see a guy that's tunneling his way into the city and others that are climbing up on siege ladders. Uh, and uh, later on, you'll see others coming up with battering rams. That is not a skateboard, by the way. That is a battering ram that would have been filled with several soldiers. In this case, there is one soldier that is larger than life than any other soldier in the scene, right? It's the king. And by the way, it's not only the Assyrians that show the king in their art this way. The Egyptians do as well, for the king, again, is uh, always shown larger than life. He is the center of attention for these campaigns. So here you see the siege ramps that have been built up against the mounds of these cities, and you can see the various tactics employed to gain entrance into the city. Here's another scene. Again, wouldn't you hate to be this guy right up here? I mean, man, your hand's not going to do very much. Put up a shield, you know? But uh, obviously, this is from the Assyrian perspective, and the hand, by the way, is not up uh, to protect his face. It's up in a, in a symbol of surrender in this particular stance, and the battering ram is going against the city wall here. Uh, we see all kinds of gruesome images of torture, and in fact, the Assyrians were known to flail the bodies of their victims while they were still alive and, and, and glory in that. They were also uh, uh, often shown uh, impaling bodies on, 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 on uh, stakes and so forth. Crucifixion doesn't 
start with the Roman Empire. It goes all the way back to the Assyrian Empire. They were known also, sorry about the German, <laughs> to burn cities. That's what it says there. Cities are burned. And uh, here you can see this guy. That's not a pitchfork he's carrying up to go up against the, the gate there. That's a, a firebrand. Okay? And he's taking it up to the city and is ready to uh, light the gate on fire. So this was a real aspect. And here, of course, in this city, you can see them all running up to the city gate with torches, ready to light the gate on fire. But you can see that flames are already spouting out the top. Some art historians have interpreted those as antlers. I beg to differ. But anyway, um, that, that I, I think is fire already consuming the city as well. But in chapter 36, as we jump forward in Isaiah, 30 chapters after the call of Isaiah in chapter 6 in verse 1, and just ignore the second half of that. Uh, If you want to learn a little German, you can compare the two, okay? Uh, Now it came about in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria. So here we have a name of a king, right? It's not just simply king of Assyria now. Like it was king of Egypt or the Pharaoh's daughter, This time we have a name given. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against how many? All the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. That's what the Bible says in Isaiah 36.1. But we have extra biblical evidence as well. We have the prisms of Sennacherib, like this particular one. This is one that's broken apart quite badly from the Israel Museum uh, in Jerusalem, We have another much better preserved whole prism that doesn't have a crack in it at all in the British Museum and also one at the Oriental Institute at Chicago as well. But this is what Sennacherib's annals say about the same event in history, the very same event. And it's dated, by the way, to 701 B.C. Forty-six of his strong walled towns. Now, notice how much more precise Sennacherib is. He wants to make sure that everybody thousands of years down the road knows exactly how many cities he conquered in Judah. It wasn't just, you know, all of them. It was 46 strong-walled towns. And how many? Innumerable. Well, a bit of exaggeration there. Uh, Smaller villages in their neighborhood I besieged and conquered. And it goes on to describe what kind of, of tactics were used. And those tactics, by the way, mirror very nicely what we already have seen on the reliefs a few moments ago. Isaiah 36, verse 2, continuing in the same chapter. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh. Now, this is not the name of the individual. This is the title of the individual. This is an official uh, who was kind of the spokesperson for the king of Assyria. From Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. So they're camped out first at Lachish, but now they're being sent to Jerusalem with a large army. Here you can see Lachish. We're going to look at Lachish now for a moment. And here is Jerusalem. Lachish was part of a series of cities. You see these cities right here? Notice this part is green and this part is kind of a, what, mustard color? This is the borderland. This is the Shephela or the low country. This is the area of Philistia over here. We mentioned Ashkelon a moment ago uh, in the, in the Stila and Ashdod. Those are two Philistine cities. Gath, where Goliath came from. These are the cities, the Judean cities, that are guarding the, um, the valleys leading up into the hill country and leading up into Jerusalem. They're the guardian fortified cities. 
The Bible tells us that Rehoboam, the king of Egypt, refortified those cities after Shishak's campaign, the Egyptian king. And so for any pharaoh coming from the south and heading to Jerusalem, these cities, the ones that are right in here, would have been the ones that guarded uh, the entryway into Jerusalem because Jerusalem's located at about almost, almost 3,000 feet above sea level. These are all down uh, in the valleys down below. So Lachish is where the king went. Now we know a lot about Lachish from the excavations in Nineveh. Nineveh is located near the city of Mosul in Iraq. We've heard a lot about that city uh, as we've heard about the war over the last uh, five years or so. And Mosul, uh, or Nineveh, a whole huge palace, the palace of Sennacherib, was excavated by Henry Austin Layard, the famous British archaeologist. And you see here, you have a large courtyard and then this green area here were the inner rooms of the king. All of these walls were, were covered with these beautiful reliefs, some of which we just saw, some of which weren't so beautiful. Basically showing the king going on lion hunts, going on military campaigns, and bringing back uh, the material for, um, for Assyria, interacting with the gods, and so forth. Here we have an artist's depiction of the the magnificence of this palace, the height of the palace. Some of you have been to the British Museum and the Louvre in Paris, and you've seen these huge, huge monuments that are found in other places as well, in Persia and in other locations. Um, that's standing right here, right at this entrance. And you're looking back into the inner room over here. This is known as the Lachish Room. Lachish, the city of Lachish, was the second most important city after Jerusalem in Israel. That's the one we just saw circled up on the, on the uh, map there. So if you look from here on the courtyard and you look through all these areas, that's Lachish, the Lachish room. And it's called the Lachish room because there a series of eight panels were found of relief depicting the siege that Sennacherib had against the city of Lachish. Just as the Bible describes. Here is an artist's depiction you can see the infantrymen here. You can see them with arrows, bows and arrows. Uh, you can see the slingers. Yes, they had slingers as well. And I wish I could have brought one of the sling stones with me today. We have two of them in the museum. They are about the size of a baseball. And they are, I'll show a picture in a moment. They're huge uh, and, and in, in terms of you know, what we think of, think of sling stones. And they were carved specifically to be perfectly round, made out of a very dense uh, flint-like rock that weighs between two and three pounds. And that could be hurled at 120 miles the length of a football field and a half with deadly accuracy. Roman medical records actually indicate to the physicians of that time how to remove sling stones from the body because if you weren't wearing armor, they would penetrate. Okay? So these were, and, and you remember what the Bible says in Samuel about uh, the slingers, the left-handed slingers of the tribe of Benjamin that could aim those stones within a hair's breadth. Okay? So these are the sling stones we're talking about right here. We've got two of them in the museum here. And I used to take them with me when I gave this lecture at different places, but I got tired taking what we call ballistas through airport security. So I don't do that anymore. Uh, too much explanation required. Uh, anyway, so this shows one of the reliefs. Here you can see the siege ramps being built up 
You see them, all of them? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. This is only one panel. More siege ramps and more siege engines are depicted against the city of Lachish than any other relief from any other palace in the Assyrian records that we have. This city was the focal point of some major, major attack. And you can see in these scenes, by the way, a number of things. The people are already leaving out of the city gates. It's kind of a, uh, how shall we say, it, it, it doesn't have a frozen moment in time, but it shows kind of a sequence of events that takes place in this narrative art that we have here. So you see not only the attack and the defense, but you also see the end result as the, cap, as the, as the inhabitants of the city leave and as the Assyrians carry off the uh, spoils and the captives as well. Here is what it looks like in person. By the way, these are at the British Museum now. Laird, of course, shipped all these back to England uh, on ships, and you can see them there today in London. Notice this particular image here. You can see the defenders on the city walls. You can see the shields there in the towers, the windows. What are they throwing down? What are these things? I'll, I'll do another picture. It's a close-up. What are these things that are being thrown down? This is kind of on the side. They're torches, just like the torches that the people were running to to light the, the gates on fire. Basically, the inhabitants of Lachish are throwing torches of fire down so that they can, what? Burn the battering rams that are coming up to destroy their city walls. It's a defensive mechanism. But the Assyrians aren't stupid. They've got not only archers defending their siege engines, they've got a fireman right over here with a long stick behind him and a gourd pouring water over the ram. See that? So you can study this, actually these scenes, quite, quite for some time and, and, and pick out these little details. These are planks of wood, by the way, that were used to build these siege ramps that led up to the city walls. And so we have a very very detailed description given here on the walls of Nineveh, which is, by the way, the same city that Jonah fled from. You remember that story? If you understand a little bit about how vicious the Assyrians were in their military tactics and their reputation around the Middle East at that time, it's no, longer, uh, it's no wonder that Jonah headed as far as he could in the opposite direction. Because from a human point of view, there was nothing that was going to that, that come that was going to be good out of Nineveh. That was what Jonah thought anyway. And of course, when he got to that wicked city, he didn't like the outcome that God had planned either. We go to the ancient city of Lachish. I love visiting this site. You can still visit it today. This is the mound of ruins of Lachish. These are multiple layers of cities superimposed one on top of the other. There are 15 cities superimposed on top of each other here at Lachish. And you can see the outline of the wall here around the top part of the tell. We call this a tell, which in Arabic or Hebrew means mound of ruins. This is the area that the, the soldiers, uh, not the soldiers, but the inhabitants would have walked up in order to enter through the city gate. Here's the city gate right here. This is the road up and the city gate into the city here. And here there is a, a um, kind of a bridge, a land bridge between the mound, which was defensible clearly on all sides, with a hill over here on this side covered in this forest. And according to the Assyrian records, according to the reliefs, Sennacherib set up his camp here so that he could watch the city attacked 
from a safe distance uh, right across the valley. We look at it from another angle. Okay, here is again the walk up and here's the gate, double gate, an outer gate and an inner gate. Here are the remains of the walls of the city, some of them being covered up. This is just the dump of the archaeologists over here, this hill. And that's how much dirt has been removed just from the British excavations of the early 1920s. And so this is the whole city of Lachish, the second most important city in Judah, second to Jerusalem, that is talked about here in both the Bible and also in Sennacherib's campaign. Isn't it nice to have artists around that can reconstruct what it really looked like in ancient times? So here we have the city. We have this huge temple fort right in the middle of the city. And we have a double wall. Here's the outer city wall again and the inner city. By the way, when you're approaching the city, you're approaching it from this side, right? Walking up like this. And if you're right-handed like most of us are, where would your sword arm be? Here, right? Where are the archers? There. Where's your shield arm? Here. So you're automatically at a disadvantage approaching the city from this angle if you're right-handed, which most people are and most people were, because your shield arm is over here and the archers can easily get you without you walking like this the whole time, okay? So, uh, so they had, and that's the general approach that you have in these ancient cities. They're always from the same direction, or most of the time anyway. So there, there's, and here's the flank right over here. Now when excavations, isn't that even a nicer one? I had to get this image from Munich. I had to make phone calls to get this image so we can use it in our library. And uh, I'm sorry, in our museum. And uh, yeah, we had to pay quite a bit of money for this image. But anyway, here's the outer, outer gate and then the inner gate over here. So this is the city today. There's the outer gate right over here. You can see how impenetrable the city would have looked from the outside as you come approaching as, with an army. Um, now we've got nice, uh, that's not barbed wire, those are... Those are vineyards in the foreground. Um, and uh, this is where Sennacherib's uh, camp would have been. Now, when the British excavated there years ago in the, 19, uh, in the teens and in the 20s and the 30s, they uncovered a huge mound between that place where Sennacherib had his camp and the city. It was huge amount of rubble and stones and material. They didn't know what it was. It wasn't until Tel Aviv University under David Yushishkin began excavating there in the 70s that they figured out that this was, in fact, the ancient siege ramp that the Assyrians had built up against the city wall. The only one to exist from the Assyrian period in the entire ancient world. Now, we have a Roman one that was built against the city of Masada. And some of you have been to Masada, and you've, you've seen that Roman siege ramp that was built against the fortress of Herod the Great. But this one was built by the Assyrians hundreds of years earlier, and uh, it's amazing. Let's look at some of the statistics here. It was made of stones weighing 25,000 tons. And it was estimated by one person that if a worker could have carried 45 kilograms an hour a distance of 300 meters, I know we have to convert that a bit to our terminology, 10,000 workers could have completed the task in about three weeks, 23 days. Now I want you to imagine you're inside the city as a Judean watching while this is taking place. We don't know if they used Assyrian soldiers to build the siege ramp. You know what they many times did, at least the Romans did this with Masada, according to Josephus, 
they used Jewish slaves that they had captured from other cities to build the siege ramp so that the inhabitants wouldn't kill their own people and the progress would go much faster. So, you, you, you know, they, 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 they thought strategically about all of these things. But on this siege ramp area, around this siege ramp area, we have found hundreds of these sling stones. Here they are. I just described them to you. Hundreds of them. You can see here the, uh, the Assyrians with their sling stones up here. They had a pile of them next to them. And I always imagine, I tell my students, you know, I grew up in Michigan, up in the north where we have snow. I know you think you have snow down here, but it's really not. I'm always amazed when the schools, you know, cancel <laughs> just at the, at the hint of any kind of flurries or anything. But anyway, it's probably a good thing that they do. Um, but up, up in the north, we used to have snowball fights, you know, out in the playground at school time. And, and what, would, what would happen if you got a snowball thrown at you and you were so fortunate to catch it before it hit you? What would you do? You'd throw it right back, right? So un, uh, it's, it's likely that these sling stones would be cast back and forth between the defenders of the city and those on the inside, even if it struck home with one of the soldiers. So you can think about those kind of, very different than our modern warfare. You can't reuse bullets very well unless you melt, melt them down or something. That takes a lot of time. The archers, they're wearing armor around them, even around their heads, and mail around their chests. And here they are with their bows and arrows and their quivers filled with more arrows behind. And yes, we found hundreds. And when I say we, I didn't excavate at Lachish. These are the archaeologists. I just include myself in them. There were hundreds of arrows that were found there, mostly iron, but even some made of uh, other materials like bone and so forth as well. This is what David Yushishkin wrote. And by the way, the four volumes of the, fi the final report volumes on the Lachish excavations have just been published last year. We have them in our library here. They're fantastic. The city of level three was burned to the ground by the Assyrians. By the way, the Assyrians always make this claim. They say, we captured, I captured, this is what the king says, I captured, I plundered, I carried away the spoils. I burned and razed the cities to the ground. And that's precisely what we find in these cities. We don't find any just little burnt spots here and there. The cities are completely decimated. They actually are picked apart and, and basically razed to the ground. And here you can see the men in this scene up above with crowbars, with um, uh, picks, doing precisely that as the, as the bricks and as the beams are falling down on this ancient city. So David Yushishkin says, buildings, namely the palace fort and the gate complex, as well as the small dwellings and shops, and the inhabitants of the inhabitants of Lachish were consumed by fire. So the city was completely destroyed. Now, Lachish is located here, but it was not the focal point of the attack against Judah. What was Sennacherib really after, after all? Jerusalem, the capital, right? That's where he was heading. Lachish was one of those necessary cities to defeat before he got to Jerusalem. And so that's precisely what the Bible says. He wanted to go to Jerusalem. He was heading for Jerusalem. What happened? We read about it again in Isaiah chapter 36. And by the way, you can read parallel accounts in Chronicles and in Kings as well. In Kings, it's almost identically written as it is in Isaiah. He sends his Rabshakeh, first of all, 
this guy who was the spokesperson of the king. And Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean. Notice. Does he speak to them in Assyrian or Akkadian? No. What would the point of that be? Nobody could understand him in the city, right? So he makes sure that all the soldiers that are guarding the city walls around Jerusalem can understand what he's saying. So he speaks Judean in their local language. And he said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Who's Hezekiah? The king of Judah. For he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, God will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the land, into the hand of the king of Assyria. So what is Rabshakeh saying? Don't trust Hezekiah. Don't trust what he says about God, because the Lord will not protect this city from the king of Assyria. And he goes on to argue and uses fairly conclusive logic here. Look at this. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. And he goes on, by the way, in this text to say, have any of the other gods, well, that's, that's coming down. Beware, lest Hezekiah misleads you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? And my friend, the answer that those people standing on the walls of Jerusalem would have to answer is no. There is no one left. We are the last ones before this mighty Assyrian army. Lachish is gone, and how many? 46 of the walled cities of Judah have already succumbed to the king of Assyria. And what about the other nations? What about Israel, the northern kingdom, earlier? So from a human perspective, is the king of Assyria right? Absolutely. And he's using that logic for the people. What would you do if you were inside Jerusalem that day and you had been the king? What would you have said? How would you have reacted to that particular challenge? Well, Hezekiah, sorry. Hezekiah in verse 37, chapter 37, verses 16 or 17, prays. That was his reaction. He prayed. Prayed to the God of heaven. And this is what he said. It's one of the most beautiful, we're not going to quote the whole thing, but read it sometime. It's one of the most beautiful prayers in Scripture. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. Did Hezekiah know Isaiah? What did Isaiah see 38 years earlier when he received the call to be God's messenger? He saw God high and lifted up, seated upon his throne, with the seraphim, which I believe are the same as the cherubim, on either side of God's throne, singing one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And by the way, the Hebrew word hosts, when we use that term, means armies. The hosts, the armies of heaven. Okay? So he's praying to the same God, whom Isaiah saw 38 years earlier. 
undoubtedly he had heard of Isaiah's experience and of Isaiah's call. And he says, you are God. You alone. What did Rabshakeh say? None of the gods could protect. Of all these nations that the king of Assyria has conquered, none of them could protect against the king of Assyria. You, O God, are alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. He is acknowledging his creatorship. Incline your ear, O Lord. Do you remember, do you remember what, what God told Isaiah would happen when he received the call in chapter 6? That the message would fall on what? Heavy hearts, on ears, ears that would not hear. Do you remember that? Heavy hearts, ears that would not hear, and eyes that would not see. Here he says, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Hezekiah knew that this was not an issue about Jerusalem and about his dominion as king but it was the God of heaven that had been directly challenged by the king of Assyria and by his messenger. This was not a domestic issue. This was a heavenly issue. It was beyond what was uh, there in front of his eyes, and so he approaches the living God. And you know, it was one of those cases uh, that's, well, let's continue reading. I'll go into that later. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands. They have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. The next period, we're going to be talking about some of those gods. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, you are the Lord. You alone. By the way, when it's capitalized in the Bible, L-O-R-D, it's Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. It's the same name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. The I Am, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. The one who has always been. You are the Lord, you alone. And so what do we read? What happened? Do you remember that what happened as a result of this? Well, immediately, immediately, Isaiah comes and Isaiah gives the king, isn't it, wouldn't this be wonderful? Isaiah gives the king an immediate message from God, an answer to his prayer. And he says that Sennacherib will not shoot an arrow in this place. For as Sennacherib has come, so will he go. So you remember what happened? Sennacherib comes to the city. How many? 185,000, okay? He comes, he besieges Jerusalem, and what happens during the night? The Bible says the angel of the Lord came, and in the morning when the camp, when the sun came up, that camp was filled with the bodies of the dead Assyrian soldiers. This is what Sennacherib says in his prism. As for Hezekiah, interesting. You know, there's some critics out there, and it just bothers me sometimes. They say that, you know, we have all these names in the Bible, and we haven't found a lot of them. 
you know, we haven't found, we just talked about Moses. We really haven't found the name Moses as in the Moses of the Old Testament. We found his name in, in other contexts, right? Tutmosa and Ramosa and so forth. But we haven't found a direct reference to Moses. A, a few years ago, somebody said uh, David didn't really exist because we haven't found any evidence that David exists. That was in 1992. That was Philip Davies. Well, the following year at the site of Tel Dan, way in the north of Israel, right on the Lebanese border, a stela was found. And guess what? It was the campaign of an Aramean king against the house of Israel and what? The house of David. The house of Israel being the northern kingdom of Israel and the house of David being the southern kingdom of Judah. And so you can't say that anymore. I'm, I'm working on a project right now where I'm documenting at least 60 names of individuals that we know from the Bible that we have found archaeologically in the archaeological record. And just a couple of the most recent ones. This past summer in Jerusalem, they were excavating. Elat Mazar was excavating there, and she uncovered the name of Gedaliah, one of the last kings or governors of, uh, of, the, of the territory. And uh, we find these things on a regular basis. So here he says, as for Hezekiah the Judean, who did not, this is Hezekiah, later on, his annals, as for Hezekiah the Judean, who did not submit to my yoke, I surrounded and conquered his strong walled towns. And he goes on to describe how he did that and so forth. And then he says, he himself, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city, like a bird in a cage. Don't you like that? I love that. Kind of reminds me of Tweety Bird, you know, stuck in her little cage. But he, 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 he describes this. He describes this. I st he doesn't say how long. The Bible says one night. He doesn't say that he defeated Jerusalem. There's silence about that. He doesn't say that he destroyed, he conquered, he raised to the ground, he carried off spoils like all the other cities. None of that is said about Jerusalem, simply that he shut Hezekiah up like a bird in a cage. And if you read the annals of the Assyrians and you see how they love to brag about their conquests, the silence in this inscription and the other inscriptions that have been found like it are deafening in what they really say. After all, what happened? Isaiah 37, 31 through 35, For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, this says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. There had been a covenant with David that his descendants would sit on the throne of Jerusalem. And he honored that covenant because of the faithfulness of Hezekiah. It's interesting to me that when you look at the palace at Nineveh, what do you find? Do you find Jerusalem depicted as the focal point of that palace relief architecture, the walls? So you go into the very throne room of Sennacherib the king. What is the focal point of those reliefs? Lachish, the second most important city of Judah. Jerusalem is not mentioned at all. 
Could it be that the Bible, as it describes the events that took place on that particular time and location, could it be that the Bible is telling the whole story? It doesn't spend much time on Lachish, but it surely expands on Jerusalem. And as it expands on Jerusalem, it tells about what God accomplished there. One of the questions that often come up is, what about Lachish? Why was it defeated, and why were some of the other cities around it defeated as well? It's interesting that in the relief, the relief set that depict Lachish at the British Museum from Nineveh, that one of the reliefs show the spoils that are leaving that particular city, being carried by Assyrian soldiers, and in some cases also the inhabitants of the city themselves. And as, as those spoils are carried out, two Assyrian soldiers are shown carrying something over their shoulders that we as archaeologists recognize immediately. They're about this tall from the ground, okay? They're ornately decorated on all sides, and it is very clear that they're incense burners. What were incense burners used for? They were used mostly in the context of temples and cultic places. Okay? They were not used like we use incense to make our houses smell nice. Okay? They were used the way they're used in, in, in Asian cultures and temples and so forth to, to, to create a kind of ambiance for the gods. What was one of those or two of those incense burners doing coming out of Lachish? Where did God say his temple should be? Only in Jerusalem, right? In our next presentation, we're going to talk specifically about that. But could it be that some of the other cities, many of the other cities, did not follow the reforms that Hezekiah carried out in Jerusalem and did not follow to the extent that God had called them to and suffered the results in the hands of Sennacherib the king? There's another lesson here, though, as well. Sometimes in our lives we think that we are surrounded by so many challenges, and sometimes those challenges seem impossible. Sometimes we feel like we're surrounded by by the armies of Sennacherib, in a sense. Like there's no way out, like, like there are financial difficulties or there's, there's marriage difficulties or there's, there's problems that just seem completely insurmountable. There's, there's school debt. I know many of you are dealing with some of those issues right now. But the story that is depicted in the Bible here basically says that we serve a God who is in heaven, a living God, who is able to overcome all obstacles, no matter how impossible they seem humanly. God is able to protect. He is able to provide. And as he did when the city of Jerusalem was about to be conquered, he was able to defend his faithful servant Hezekiah and the people who had been faithful to him there. Psalm 46.10 is one of my favorite verses. It's in the context of the passage that talks about the Lord is my strength and refuge, a very present help in trouble. But it goes on, and, and at the, at, in the middle of that passage, we have a statement that I used to have as a screensaver on my computer screen. In the short form, be still and know that what? I am God. I will be exalted among the nations I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Do we believe that today? We need to 
rest no matter what crisis comes upon us in the times in which we live. And we are living in the end times. God will be our refuge. That's the only security that we have. That's the only sense of, I mean, I, I don't know how to prepare for the end times of trouble, but I don't know if I can unless I am constantly steeped in God's word and in preparing that way and I'm close to God because he's coming soon. Well, it's time to break again. And uh, our next presentation will focus on the gods and goddesses of ancient Israel. What happened when Israel turned away from the God of heaven? What can we say about their religious practices back then? Let's talk a little bit about that in our next session. It's vividly illustrated through archaeology today. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>